Good evening. Uh, I am Elena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education. Tonight, we are thrilled to have with us the recent winner of the Wien Prize from the Studio Museum in Harlem, Jenny C. Jones, whose first museum show, Directions, Jenny C. Jones' Higher Resonance, is currently on view on the third floor. It's a really beautiful exhibition. In conversation with Jenny tonight will be acclaimed jazz pianist, Jason Moran, who currently serves as the artistic advisor for jazz at the Kennedy Center, and whom Rolling Stone magazine has called the most provocative thinker in current jazz. I'd like to thank Kerry Brower, Deputy Director and Chief Curator of the Hirjohn, for his continued support of the Hirjohn public programs, and also Caroline Elliott, Manager of Adult Programs, and Sarah Gordon, Time-Based Media Coordinator, for organizing tonight's program. I would also like to thank Evelyn Hankins, Curator of Directions, Jenny C. Jones, Higher Resonance, as well as Over Under Next Exhibition, which is on view also, for her support and guidance. Thank you. We are extremely grateful also to our generous donors who made this exhibition possible. Atria Group has had a long-term commitment to the exhibitions at the Hirjohn and continues to play a leadership role in its support of the arts. The Herb Alpert Foundation, a new donor to the museum, was especially pleased to support Jenny's show. I further would like to acknowledge a special support provided for this evening by James Elephantes. Now let me introduce the artists. Evelyn Hankins first encountered Jenny's work during the exhibition Absorb Diffuse at the Kitchen in 2011. Jenny's exhibitions led to her receiving a Wien Prize, all brought significant media attention to her from NPR, Art in America, New York Times, and the Huffington Post. As Evelyn says, Jenny typifies contemporary artists who no longer doubt abstract art's capacity to engage social, political, and historical concerns. Her current exhibition, Higher Resonance, gathers together not only various artistic and historical references, but also an array of media, including painting, sculpture, works on paper, and sound, to explore in new ways their affinities with one another. Jenny's work has been shown at several art institutions, including the prestigious De Menil Collection, the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Atlanta Contemporary Art Center, and Yerba Buena Center for Arts in San Francisco, among other. And she has works in collection of Deutsche Bank, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Studio Museum of Harlem. In addition to her Wien Prize, Jenny has also received a Polo Krasner Grant, a Creative Capital Grant, and the William A. Johnson Prize. In conversation with Jenny tonight, we have Blue Note recording artist Jason Moran, who, as I mentioned earlier, is also the artistic advisor for jazz at the Kennedy Center. 
With his group, the Bang Wagon, Jason plays with many of the same principles that interest Jenny, including improvisation, composition, group concept, repertoire, technique, and experimentation. Jason is also on the piano faculty of the Manhattan School of Music and has had work included in the collections of both the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Whitney Museum of American Art. He has performed in numerous venues, both in the US and abroad, including museums such as Walker Art Center and Hammer Art Museum. In 2010, he was named MacArthur Fellow. Let me read from a recent review that really touched me. Pianist Jason Moran walked on stage at the San Francisco Jazz Center. Moran, a 38-year-old ex-skateboarder, originally from Houston, laughed. Meet each other, he said. Then he sat down at the acoustic piano. His group, the Bang Wagon, began to play a mysterious droning wisp of a tune, quiet as a meditation. The house lights dimmed, and nine of the best skaters in San Francisco emerged, one by one, with a whoosh and a rumble, with a, rim, a, rim, a rhythm and flow, sound and motion, an improbable extension of the band. Please help me to welcome Jenny C. Jones and Jason Moran. Jenny does all this work with um, sound. Um, but I never have a microphone on. <laughs> microphone has an on switch. Um, this is a, for me, it's a real honor to be here to discuss Jenny's work um, at the Hirschhorn. Um, as a kind of recent uh, arrivee to the DC scene, I felt it was important also that the institutions be working with each other. Um, so I feel like this is a great uh, example of how the Kennedy Center and the Hirschhorn can have a relationship. Um, we would like to start our talk or our conversation with a great clip of a fantastic drummer named Elvin Jones who played with John Coltrane most notably. Um, and Elvin Jones in this clip uh, describes how his drums sound in relationships to colors. So we're gonna play that clip. So I hadn't seen that until today, that um, Jason and, and I had a chance to sort of catch up and debrief about where we were gonna take this. Right. And um, it was nice to start with Elvin, because I like to lie and say Elvin Jones is my cousin, but it's not true. <laughs> but um, I often open talks um, with students and other lectures with this image of John Coltrane uh, in the Guggenheim in 1962, because this image, um, to me, really frames the root of my practice and my interest in working with modernism and, and sound and uh, jazz inside of, of this environment. So there's a lot of shots of this image where he's where it's cropped and you can't see his hand. It's funny, this image is kind of all over the internet, but this particular one where he's, where he's pointing at his instrument, his right. means of participating in a, a dialogue about modernism while standing inside of the iconic image of the Guggenheim behind him right. is sort of the perfect way to frame our discussion as well. Right, uh, you know, and Coltrane also represents this uh, 
I mean, there are very few um, jazz artists that have taken the type of trajectory that he did in such a short period of time. So from his work, you know, in big bands and then into Miles Davis's group, and then into his own group, which then has many, many iterations, and then he passes away. Yeah. Um, but he, he changes so much in such a short period of time. He changes languages so frequently, too. Um, and this, this part about kind of the kind of language that, that, that an artist uses, I mean, as you, you know, I, I think about like when we get introduced to language as kind of, so as a, as a thinker, I'll call you a thinker. <laughs> Jenny as thinker, you know, and when those those bits of language get embedded into your kind of persona, and I know you talk about in your family at home, your mother listening to jazz and your brother listening to blues, and then and like how those two, like what is that, like how was that feeling as you were listening as you were growing up? Well, you, everyone ignores their parents' records until much later in life, and you realize that you know when you were slamming your door to listen to whatever you were listening to, that they actually had. Um, great music was downstairs or elsewhere. Um, but some of it really came, and I've said it was probably like an eye-rolling thing, but I did have a, an artist epiphany where I sort of realized how much time I was spending in the studio curating what I was going to listen to yeah. while I was working, that that became part of, of my work, um, excavating music, and a lot of it was from family stuff, and then um, thinking about being a formalist or a minimalist and then recognizing how much the modern jazz quartet was around, which right. is super structured, super clean, you know, right. a formalist kind of quartet that's tight and that, that yeah. translates very easily into, into my rigid. <laughs> yeah, the modern jazz quartet is kind of like iconic also visually because these are four beautiful men wearing tuxedos every concert. Um, and as they bowed, as they left the stage, they bowed, you know, you know, it was like choreography. And then they all departed together, stone-faced. <laughs> there was rarely any grinning going on. Like, this was a very serious group of musicians uh, that kind of laid a, uh, a foundation of kind of about how serious the music was, too. You know, you think about the music, jazz, kind of also as this extension of, of where it was coming from, like, even if you go back to, like, vaudeville days and you think about, you know, singers like Burt Williams in the early 1900s, who may, you know, might be the, I call him the equivalent of Michael Jackson in the early 1900s, mm -hmm. you know? Like, he's so popular, you know? Or then here comes Fats Waller in the 1930s, this kind of rolling eyes and tons of technique at the piano, you know, with this balance of kind of, uh, of silliness and and proficiency, mm -hmm. and then it, it, then here we are with the modern jazz quartet. You know, yeah. here is the work. Here it is in its in right. beauty. But and it's also that transition to the, the sit down and listen and don't right. dance right. to this. You have to go away from being the. I mean, you know this from shifting from being the uh, the band that plays at the dance to everyone sitting down at a table and taking it seriously, which was which I think was the paradigm shift for jazz with with. Um, modernism with, with Bop, when it was too complicated to dance to and you had to just perk your ears up and be present with the music right. instead of getting lost in it in this other way. Right. Your older brother, now, you know, I have this thing about older, like, you know, you kind your of older brother. my older brother, but your older brother, um, this, uh, I always thought that anything an older sibling was listening to was like immediately had 
extra cool factor on it, you know, that you were like, oh, you know, they know better than me, so I'm just going to follow. Yeah. In a way, I'm just gonna, still going to have my taste, but it's really being curated by, yeah. by this older sibling. Um, well, that was all Parliament. <laughs> that was like Funkadelic Ohio Players. Right. <laughs> I was a child of the 70s. So that's what, you know, that's what was across the hall. Right. More P-Funk than anything else. And we can talk about how funk operas are actually performance art pieces, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but Parliament Funkadelic is a, is a kind of like expansive group in the way of Sunrise, like this, these expansive ideas about, about sound and the image of sound uh, and, and the performance aspect of it all. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, the thing about listening to, uh, I think, music in the house, or even, I'll say, my older brother and, and being a child of the 80s was hearing, like, hip-hop when it was actually coming out and when it was actually so new and so fresh um, and clean. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, that was a very, like, low-key inside joke. Um, <laughs> for like outcast like lovers in the house. Anyway, but um <laughs> but I, I I always think like that without those kind of interventions in the home, you know, like you weren't an only child, you yeah. know. Uh then then there's this way that kind of like you start planting this 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 notion of I don't know, like you you grade what you hear in a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was wondering then if your mother was then to hear some of the sounds that you work with now, you know, and I say like, like how did, did you ever talk to your mother about like, Yeah, you know, this? I mean, it's funny because, well, I learned a lot from her. I learned a lot from her. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> it's like, that's a, that's a whole bigger thing. Right. I miss her dearly. Because there's these, these times when my mother's not here anymore, but when she would hear me playing some things she didn't quite understand, she would just look at me after hearing it and say, yeah. boy, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and there was something like, uh, I think a real wake up moment that I don't know if uh, my peers, my jazz peers ever really discusses, is, is our relationship to our music and our relationship to our families. Like, so my relationship to pointillism and music and my relationship to my grandmother. And where do those two things intersect? Right. You know, or like trying to explain my version of the blues to my grandfather, who's from Louisiana, who really listens to blues and him yeah. not being convinced of my version of the blues until very recently was he yeah. convinced that I could actually play some blues, yeah. you know? And like sound has this way of uh, kind of challenging us in this way. Where do we go from? from well, I mean, this is perfect segue to legacy, be it, you know, institutional legacy or how Elvin influences ideas about color or how Coltrane in the Guggenheim could, could really sort of become the roots and underpinning for me, saying, see, that's the moment, right. that's the moment that I'm talking about, that intersection, that exclusion and inclusion, that relationship between the audible aspects of modernism that weren't really accepted into the canon because mm -hmm. the canon was a white box sort of gallery institutional setting. And, and, and that conversation was more in the record stores and the streets, mm -hmm. which is why I thought it was really um, brilliant 
the way Evelyn opened her essay for the brochure by quoting um, Lee Krasner talking about how Jackson would lock, Jackson Pollock, her husband, uh, would lock himself away and listen to jazz for days at a time, right. windows shaking. Because that intersection of how modernism was born um, in the United States is very much about, about that sort of the, the secretness of what we're into and then mm. how much you're exposing, how much you're exposing what your influences are right. at a time when it's when it might not be in vogue uh, as a white artist to say I'm listening to this or it probably really was or the other way around for mm -hmm. a black artist to secretly have crushes on painters. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a talk at, um, we'll show slides later at uh, the Atlantic Contemporary Art Center about my relationship to Ellsworth Kelly and it was mm -hmm. hard to say like I as a black woman have a weird art crush on Ellsworth uh, Kelly. He's, he's crush worthy. Everybody loves him. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to, to um, sort of frame all of this little weird trip that we're going down with by talking about the periphery as a concept because it's something that, that I think came to me and, and we, we talked about uh, as a way to sort of frame things that um, the periphery can function also as uh, talking about the people that are on the fringes that are on the outside of a, a core conversation or discourse but also for me it, it really leads into aesthetically um, paying attention to and working um, with the edges of surfaces mm -hmm. uh, the, the tangible aspect of, of um, and the physicality of art as object but also when I'm editing sound listening to the little weird crumbs as I was calling them, the little bells and chimes, the beginnings of a song, the end of a song, those little right. quiet moments that aren't about the crescendo right. and what happens if you start to pull those little um, nuggets together to, to make a, mm -hmm. a new structure, a new language out of, out of the periphery. Mm -hmm. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going. So when, when you think about the periphery, I think that there's a part of it also that means uh, you're not at the core or center of any ideology. Um, there's a moment when you have to face away from your audience in order to sort it out. I mean, the, the term mm -hmm. woodshedding, right. that you know, when you sort of just go into your, your cave and, and sort it out. And so this is the cover of a, of a, a, a book that I'm on. <laughs> And the curator took this photograph of me literally watching the paint dry, unbeknownst to me. And, uh, and years later, it ended up on the cover of this book about creative practice. And then Miles Davis, who is known for facing away from his, from his audience. And I don't know if it's a, you want to talk about what that gesture means to you in terms of Miles? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I still have, you know, like what becomes like myth is interesting yeah. over time. And, um, and my, uh, my relationship to performance art in a way, you know, uh, I will say even via uh, my kind of creative partner for the last five or six years, Joan Jonas, has kind of shown me a freedom within what actually can happen on a stage that makes total sense that mm -hmm. a person would can gesture in a different way away from an audience. It never seemed, you know, odd to me. But I think Miles Davis always kind of asked that, that uh, well, maybe he didn't ask. Yeah, no. <laughs> maybe that was the, the biggest kind of notion about, about, his, about his practice, that he didn't necessarily ask. He always, <clears throat> he might cut off a relationship with an ensemble that was <clears throat> actually about to, they made great music, you know, this group was John Coltrane, and then, okay, enough of you. And now another group. And then they crescendo, and then enough of you. Mm -hmm. And now it's another group. You know, he kind of kept 
this process going? I mean, I wonder, you know, in, in, in hindsight, and this, it's this relationship between he and John Coltrane, uh, two maybe the most pivotal figures in the music, you know, that have taken such kind of drastic turns in their artistic practice mm -hmm. within a short period, you know, over a few decades. Yeah. Um, it's a very rare example to get to watch this happen. Um, but I think um, looking at um, looking at you watch paint paint dry. <laughs> You know, I always think about these private moments, you know, of, of what an artist kind of, you know, w w you know, when I started to meet various artists, I would be so curious about what the practices and the processes were. And it was the first question I would start to ask. And the first person to even kind of make me aware of what a process was, was the, the artist, Adrian Piper. <laughs> I mean, um, Adrian Piper, um, who, kind of had, for me, an impactful moment that changed, I think, my direction as an artist. Because at some point, I was enjoying the abstraction that jazz had, but I actually was taking the abstraction for granted, you know? I didn't really understand what was being said from, say, Miles Davis or Duke Ellington, you know? in these abstract moments. So we kind of learn abstraction in a way, but we don't really know what we're up to, yeah. to a degree. And seeing her, a retrospective of her work in Barcelona, I was then struck by, well, where is my realism? Like, well, okay, you know, um, I feel like I hear it in, say, Michael Jackson. I feel like I understand his realness, you know? Uh, can I, through the work, then get to something that then says, the negative information that an audience then understands. Yeah. And that became a very difficult kind of place to think about. Um, Miles Davis making work that so many times challenges what people kind of know or what they, they think they know about sound or what they think they know about what a musician is yeah. or what is improvisation. And then in the 70s, he's making these songs which have very little kind of melodic information and they're more of these kind of movements of sound together. I think that's interesting when you think about that concept of the periphery and how the courage it takes to be out on those, on those edges. Right. And then you come back to the center with your ideas and, and see how it's interpreted even if it's yeah. you know, something that, that you felt later on through a different channel. I have to say that um, Jason's kind of a unicorn in the sense that he has, is a musician who's, who has one foot grounded in the visual art world. It's, it's one reason why it's like overwhelming pleasure to talk with you because I think that too many um, disciplines are separated. As much as we like to throw around terms like multidiscipline, multidisciplinary or multimedia, I think uh, it's usually one person trying to like bring in all these media, but it's not one person reaching out to other disciplines. And, and I think we're starting to see more of that, which is which is good. And it's a part a part of this. You have to face away from your audience to to sort it out, to turn your back for a minute, to figure out how to process that. And it's a, yeah, and it's a very <clears throat> it must be also kind of a a nerve-wracking moment too. To then once you then turn back face to the audience again. 
to say, make new work, like higher resonance upstairs. Like, okay, now I'm ready to kind of display this. Terrifying. <laughs> but you accomplish it well, though, enough. <laughs> um, but those moments of when you actually turn back to, to welcome somebody into the, into the process again is, is then you get to see, I mean, you were asking uh, on the train down today about, um, about how it feels, you know, or, I mean, as a musician, you make a record and then you actually have to hit the road. You actually have to right. go put it in front of people to really, yeah. to feel something, uh, to understand or, or to start to understand. The difference, the shift from being in the studio, the music studio, right. to being out gigging. Right. And the right. difference from being in the studio in a big way, isolated, to being in a white box environment in a context. Right. It's a, a very parallel, similar yeah. process. So one thing that I thought was amazing is the first time that Jason and I um, met, we would, I came to his music studio in Harlem, which was was lovely to be in that space. And then we went out for lunch, and we were talking about um, coming to DC. Uh, it's kind of our relationship to the institutions that we were engaged with. And he, I had asked Evelyn if I could see some Alma Thomas pieces, just as a springboard to start thinking about abstraction, to think about DC. Um, I don't know if, if, if you are familiar, this is a mainly DC crowd who knows uh, Alma Thomas's work, a DC colorist, um, the first African American woman to get a BFA in the United States also. Um, and so I had asked Evelyn to see some of her work and this is what, what got pulled and I totally almost cried in front of these paintings because I'd only seen them in books for right. years and years and right. uh, that happens often in museums for passionate art nerds. <laughs> and then in our conversation, Jason emailed me this image because he used an Alma Thomas. Yeah. And talk about how you... The Kennedys, I thought that there, was a, there were a lot of images of, of jazz. You know, and they're good images of people in old microphones and black and white smoky spaces. And, uh, but that's like one. Um, and, but I also wanted, in a way, for the Kennedy Center and especially our jazz program to kind of also look outward to what has happened in D.C. And Alma Thomas is a very central figure. Um, and so we uh, were able to, to, to be allowed to use her painting, The Eclipse. Uh, so this is a kind of a, this is the painting, Eclipse. I wish we owned it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually hanging there. But that's the painting eclipse that when we are presenting concerts in the Terrace Theater, um, that's where it hangs. Uh, so that's Ellis Marcellus sitting at the piano uh, under that painting. I have another photograph of Anthony Braxton under that, that piece. Um, but also, it, it, you know, I mean, being a huge fan of seeing Alma Thomas, you know, brush strokes for years and years and years and, and feeling like also like she's the type of artist that always remind myself or other students struggling their way through. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you might go a long time before you actually hit the ball. Yeah. You know? For me, Alma's always said, I didn't fall from the sky. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's abstraction here. And uh, we, we see shifting through the channels of what's in vogue, what expectations are there for uh, women or artists of color in terms of what kind of work they're producing. Mm -hmm. So not only to have a woman who's a painter, but who's an abstract painter uh, that you can point to historically, sort of cushions, adds a little cushion, a little buoyancy to feeling like you're swimming out there on your own. 
but now also have Julie Marutu, Mark Bradford, and right, the, there's right. a whole new wave of, of, of artists that, I don't want to use the word permission, but they, you know, they're not even asking for permission, they're just doing right. what they feel. That is a, a very difficult, um, that's one thing, I mean, you have a master's degree. <laughs> I'm still paying for it. Still paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> you have a master's degree. I have a bachelor's. I remember the day I paid for mine. I was very happy um, that I was paying for it with you know what I'd learned from school. Uh, but uh, and then you skip right to genius level with MacArthur. <laughs> Cut out the middleman. <laughs> oh. Funny. Um, <laughs> but the, you know what they don't ever really. Nobody or rarely. I'm sure people do. I mean, I try to say it a lot to my students, or is to say, you know, you don't really have to ask. You don't need the permission. Yeah. And and to you want you want students to really go deep into making big mistakes through their work, uh, and then point to Alma Thomas or point to Mark Bradford or whoever you would like to to notice as mm -hmm. you know as not necessarily rule breakers, but the ones who continue in that long tradition. This yeah. is not anything new, yeah. but these people are thinking it's about a, it's the It's a, yeah. One of my favorite, um, when I, the, my orientation at the Art Institute of Chicago, and I bring this up some, when I talk to students especially, because it was kind of a mind-blowing thing for a uh, president of, of, a, of an art school to say, but he, he laid it on the line to the room full of new students and said, if you have a choice between being an artist and being something else, then you shouldn't be here. Hmm. It's, this, it's, not, it's not a choice. And he said, there's a, a difference between being an art student and yeah. being an artist because there's yeah. also the, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, so I'm going to art school because it's cool. <laughs> and then you're like, well, that's a $60,000 worth of cool. So what are you going to do? <laughs> but you never had that moment? I never, well, yeah. It's a blessing and a curse when you don't, when that's it. Right. I mean, if you'd asked me when I was seven years old what I wanted to be, I, I would have said artist. And right. I tried to play instruments and quit everything because it was right. too. Oh, that's right. You're a clarinetist at, at heart, right? Is a clarinet? Oh, no. No, I quit the violin and I quit the piano. Oh, okay. I'm a quitter. Yeah, this is okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll move forward. I was trying not to make too many jokes, but I can't help it. Ah, so this painting came up in conversation. Right, this is a painting by John Biggers called Shotguns. Um, I'm from Houston, Texas, and my father owned this painting uh, for years. I grew up with this painting. And, uh, and Jen, when Jenny and I were talking, it was kind of like, well, what, you know, how do you even make this kind of entry into, um, into looking at work? Uh, and I will say that I used to practice and just stare at this image because it was in the living room and literally try to learn my McCoy Tyner piano solos and my Thelonious Monk piano solos while staring at this image like day in, day in, day out, day out. And my father was a kind of a big collector of John Bicker's work. And at some point, when I was in high school, my father said, oh, you know, you should really meet John Biggers. Now, mind you, I never thought that you should meet an artist. <laughs> and yet, but, we're at meet we the are, artist. Right, meet the artist, right. <laughs> Like, you know, like it just wasn't necessarily in my kind of frame of reference. Yeah. Meeting McCoy Tyner, yes. 
but meet the guy who painted that. Okay, wow, it was a, kind of a new. It's like the great Oz, like pulling the curtain back to see yeah. where where did that come from. Yeah, and you know because I would because in our house it was kind of like he had a major presence in our home. He had a major presence in our neighborhood of Third Ward, Houston, Texas, working at Texas Southern University, head of the art department there. Uh, my uncle was one of his students, mm -hmm. so it kind of felt like oh, okay, I should meet this man. And then he, he passed away not long after that. I never got to meet him. And it was, that, <clears throat> it was that moment, or one of those moments, when I was also at a performing arts high school that I started to realize that at a performing arts high school, like Duke Ellington is here, the high school has the art forms all together under one roof. And that will rarely happen for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, that theater, dance, uh, Classical orchestras and singing, you know, a jazz group, you know, and art will all be there together, all in class together, learning about each other's forms together, uh, observing each other's forms together, mm -hmm. you know, the highs and lows of it, and uh, and but this was a major moment uh, of of kind of uh, kind of synesthesia as you kind of. And it's, there's so much repetition and pattern in the right. work to, I, just to, to imagine you practicing and having that sort of language, a different yeah. kind of language and structure. Yeah, and, you know, also these pieces kind of also represent the, the neighborhood in a way. You know, it's kind of this, uh, these times when you wake up in your life. You know, like, like there are just yeah. a few moments that will happen that you clearly wake up. Uh, and you know, like what I was kind of getting at, at the, in the earlier was wanting to ask you. Like I had a moment where I doubted that this should piano and music should be what I should do, and I had enough friends to say, "Ah, you're crazy. You should actually continue." Yeah. And did you never have that moment where, like, there was like a really self-doubt or doubt yeah. about the future? No. <laughs> That's really good. No, it's kind of insane. Like I did a lot of work for uh, nonprofits and other arts organizations, so I definitely had like a chunk of time when I moved to New York that was scrappy. That I was like, "How am I going to do this?" Right. Um, um, but there's an a, there's there's a I hate to quote Picasso of all people, but he actually said once that art making is a form of exorcism, mm -hmm. and there's definitely this sort of there's a build up, and I know I'm sure you have it. There's you, where you just you have to, you know, right. it's almost like an, an addiction and it operates outside of language. It's outside of the way that you communicate in your in your life. There's you know there's something more elegant or true about yourself that you're able to put in your work and your creative practice that's just you can't do it any other way right it's and it's you become very vulnerable in those moments um, which uh, <clears throat> think I mean in looking at the work upstairs I mean there's this moment or oh, there's lots of moments that happen in it <laughs> um, but walking into this 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 framed space and when you enter the blank canvas uh, of sound or in space, and as most of you hopefully have seen when you walk upstairs, is and depending on when you walk in, I remember I was halfway down the hallway when I said, "Oh, I hear Jenny," <laughs> like I heard you kind of calling into the gallery, like here comes, and that's a in a space that is mostly silent. Yeah, you know, a museum is mostly silent. You really are kind of like yeah. shouting at that moment. 
you know, more than the kid who comes in and is laughing with his friends, you know, about how silly something they think is, you know. It's like, so how, do you, how are you dealing with what it is? Uh, it's, a sound in a, in, a, in a physical space is really hard. I mean, I think that this is, um, the kitchen show was, was, was a breakthrough show, and, and the fact that I had bridged those two worlds by making two-dimensional pieces that were more physically related to the sound in the room, so it wasn't like drawings of speakers mm -hmm. or amps, and then there's the sound thing over here that's kind of, is it narrated in the work? Or, but a, a true bridge, and, and, and part of that, you know, resolve is what, of course, led to higher resonance, which expanded on, on those ideas. Um, These pieces here, your relationship to Blue Note Records. Um, yeah. Well, the, the, um, this is an Ellsworth Kelly uh, print lithograph from, I believe, like 1981. Um, and uh, this is a, a really tight, detailed crop shot from a, a Blue Note LP cover. And so this is part of the project from 2009 that was at the Atlanta Contemporary Art Center. And I'll go through some of these images, but um, the Kelly piece sort of, to me, read like, a, like, an, like when you open up a, a double LP to read the liner notes. That was kind right. of like how that struck me. Mm. And it led to making this edition in aluminum, which uh, it's a series, an edition called Song Containers, and sort of traces um, the shells and the frames that have contained something as ephemeral as sound. Because we don't, in the digital age, have any, there's no shells anymore. Right. That's, it's that's just non-existent <laughs> in that sense. Right. Um, so this is a shot of the exhibition. Um, I wanted to show these also because this was uh, an exhibition that, that I returned to painting um, without actually making painting. These are done mm. directly on the wall. And I also like that they, that working directly on the wall and having something that was going to be painted over was another sort of gesture of making something that's not participating in the marketplace, that uh, not participating in like something that's an object for sale, mm -hmm. um, that's just as temporary as when you play a song and then it ends and it goes away and the right. air is the air and the walls are white again. Mm -hmm. So one of the board members at the Contemporary Arts Center actually owned the Kelly, so that was what kind of solidified the moment it was beyond a coincidence because I was able to then borrow the very print that started this body of work right. and, frame, <clears throat> and frame a series of works on paper I did with the, with the Kelly print. So here's a detail. Uh, the dimensions of this uh, wall painting uh, are based on the scale, again, of a double LP that's, that's open. And we'll stop on this detail because I wanted to ask you how you came toward your relationship with Blue Note and well, it's talk a, a little bit about the record industry versus the music world. Yeah, <laughs> record industry. <laughs> well, after graduating college, um, there's a lot of blessings that happened kind of concurrently. Um, and I started working with this musician, Greg Osby, as alto saxophonist. As a senior in college, I started touring with him. And he was recording for Blue Note Records. And there was a club in New York called Sweet Basil. It was a pretty historic club that clo it's closed now. It's been closed for a while. But Greg Osby's band was playing there. And so clearly, you know, people from Blue Note Records started to show up to see his, their artists perform. And um, after 
one performance, the president of Blue Note Records, Bruce Lundvall, walked up to me and said, let's make a record. Wow. Now, okay, I'm 22. So at 22, you don't turn down Blue Note Records. I mean, Blue Note Records is the institution of jazz. It's, it embodies everything. It is, uh, has always been you know, a thought-provoking record label. It's always had a design characteristic. And it, it maintained its legacy while oh. a lot of other things fell apart. Yeah, it's the only American jazz label that still has its stake firmly in the ground. And clearly, you see they've been around since 1939. Um, and next year at the Kennedy Center, we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of, the, of Blue Note Records with a five-day festival, which provoked a whole conversation like, oh, Jenny should come make some wall paintings at the <laughs> Kennedy Center. <laughs> She should revive her Blue Note work at the Kennedy Center. Uh-oh. Funders, no. Pressure. <laughs> anyway, um, so, but, the, but the, the label and, I mean, we were talking and people, artists have different relationships with labels just as artists have different relationships with galleries or museums or their own work. Uh, and, and I always like to think that I've been kind of signed to that label, Blue Note, over the past, I guess, 15 years as a musician that was out of the old system, which was let him go wherever he wants to go, mm -hmm. you know? And I felt like one of my m most pivotal moments was this record I did, Artists in Residence, which was about all these commissions I received. And you were able to then bring in your, mom your influence from Adrian Piper and to continue right. that conversation. Right, to have Adrian Piper's voice on, the, on a jazz record, to have Joan Jonas performing on a jazz recording, you know, to have my wife singing on it as well, like three of the most important women I consider in my life, you know, artistic life kind of in one recording together um, because I felt like that was the kind of legacy I was supposed to leave behind for then some kid 20 years ago who yeah. says, okay, well, what is, who I is I love that, that part of your, your intention was to insert that into the, to the, the, the discography camp. of what Blue Note is. Right, because I think at some point, you know, we consider, we like to try to marginalize what uh, an artist can be influenced by. And, you know, jazz press does this lovely. They say, oh, he's interested in classical music. Oh, really? Like, really? I'm like, is that crazy to be into classical music? Like, really? It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And uh, <laughs> so I keep one, you know, like, 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 no, it's, it's, it's that and it's so much more. And how do, I, as an artist, and Blue Note has continued to allow this, kind of show this spectrum or spectral approach to what I think creative music is. Yeah. And, and it's what did you think about um, like the Verve remixes and having, giving people access to the archives to, to well, I think it's and that's a little digression, but but it's always I think it's always good. Now the products might not turn out good, yeah. you know, but it's important I think to, to let other things happen to yeah. to the canon, any yeah. canon, you know. Um, it's Warhol taking soup cans, you know, like any canon should at some point be re-examined, mm -hmm. you know, just to see what else might fall out of it. Uh, that's how I like to look at work. I mean, in the way that you would take different uh, performances of music musicians recordings and then and then figure out which segments of the recordings work well together is the same way that I would look at Thelonious Monk's music. I mean, when you yeah. showed me one day, like, oh, I listened to these five songs or six songs all together, and I was like, oh, well, when I was working on this piece of Thelonious Monk, I actually listened to the entire record, all the songs at one time. Yeah. Because it seemed like at some point you yeah. have to start to look at 
to music or you have to start to look at what else about Ellsworth Kelly? Like yeah. I would never think Ellsworth Kelly, Blue Note Records, <laughs> double LP fold out. You know what <laughs> I mean? But when you think about any kind of post-war conversation, that you know, it even predates that dialogue to me predates um, seeing Coltrane in the Guggenheim. Mm -hmm. it, it's more along the, that 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 little root moment. That's there's this exchange that's not talked about that mm -hmm. that post-war relationship between uh, black soldiers that had a whole different experience coming to Europe and came back with a fire in their belly mm -hmm. and, and wanting to make change and wanting to to get more uh, experimental and the birth of Bop at Menton's and all of that mm -hmm. kind of energy is the same time that Ellsworth Kelly got out of the war and mm -hmm. came back to the U.S. and mm -hmm. so there's just like it's there. I mean when you start to look at music history and art history it just folds together because it's actually just decade by decade the same conversation. Right. This is like NPR. <laughs> um, so I wanted to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about the show upstairs and um, this was the first little paper model that I made uh, almost last, yeah, last summer and I think, you know, I told Evelyn I still have one of those little benches so I have to give you a tiny bench to have on your desk <laughs> because I'm, I'm that nuts. So it manifested into uh, into the floor plan, but looking at the floor plan um, and going back to our other discussion about the periphery, I, I, you know, I came to realize that that was one thing that was also happening in in the space upstairs. I know some of you haven't seen the show yet, so you'll just you'll just have this knowledge prior to visiting, which might enrich it in some way. But having the gallery divided with an acoustic intervention, right. as I called it, architecturally was was the first time I was able to do that. And you we were talking about the feel of a room, and even when we did the the the, the soundtrack here in this space, we were we're talking about how you know rooms feel different, sound feel different if there's people here or not people here. Right. Um, and usually in a gallery situation, you walk into the room and the, it's how it's going to be. And there's almost always <laughs> high ceilings and concrete floors, and no one knows anything about what you're trying to do with equipment. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really a special experience, and I'm, I'm grateful. Um, to be at the Hirshhorn because one of the first things they said was like, where do you want the walls? And I was just like, oh, like, right, right. okay. Right. And um, I think they might keep that wall <laughs> for a while. It turned out pretty well. Um, so, but again, it, the, it became abstractly then about this boundary, about this periphery. So it, right. it ended up folding back into this other conversation that I wasn't even aware I was making about how space is divided, how we are dividing um, the canon, how we're dividing our mm -hmm. our medias. Oh, oh, I have to start this. So part of the uh, what's upstairs, and speaking of the periphery, is that the edited sound piece. Um, uses a lot of the beginnings and endings of songs from uh, Rashawn Roland Kirk. And so I found this live performance of his and um, I wanted to make sure to show the video and we were talking about like, oh, we should just play it. And it was like, you have to sort of see him yeah. perform because he's um, harmonizing and playing with himself, playing multiple horns at the same time. If you don't know who he is, you're going to go home and look at more <laughs> footage of him yeah. immediately. 
Um, so, but this is actually, you know, to pull the curtain back and demystify some of the, the editing process of the sound. This is the song that I used, sort of the, the beginnings of. It's, it's different on the recording than it is at live performances. I'm sure it's different every time mm -hmm. you perform something live. So let's just watch like a minute or two of this. Unbelievable. Right, you can clap. I that. know, right? <laughs> That's not your everyday um, uh, technique. Yeah. 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 I have to say one reason why I love this song is because it it moves in and out of that territory that we're talking about. Right. That it's, it's uh, rebellious and radical and experimental and paying attention to the tiny sounds and the edges, but then it's got sweeping emotion and melody. Yeah. And, and that part of melody is more about tradition and legacy and presence and very generous and giving, but also very like, then I'm gonna smack you in the face and do yes. something really yeah. radical yeah. at the same time. And when that can happen in, in one composition, I think that's why this album for him was, showed people that he wasn't like a trickster. He kind of got flack for, you know, it's a gimmick. He can play like two horns at the same time, but mm -hmm. this really showed his, his writing skills, I think. Yeah, and it, also, you know, there's a kind of a, a sense of feeling of the, those artists, musicians at that time. I and mean, two of my piano teachers played with Rassan Rule and Kurt. Uh, Andrew Hill, a great pianist, and Jackie Bayard. Both of them were in Rassan's band, and, and studying with them uh, while I was still in, when I was in New York, um, how they thought about canon was that you could look at it and then you could cut it up and that you could slice it and then you could remove things. I never remember, I mean, I remember so uh, vividly seeing Andrew Hill do this performance. And he's playing with this quartet and uh, he, um, they're gonna, he says to the audience, we're gonna play some Bach. I'm like, oh great, Andrew Hill playing Bach. And, um, but when they play it, it's four musicians and they're playing something, I was like, this sounds nothing like any Bach I've heard. So when I had a lesson with him, you know, a year later, I said, you know, I remember hearing you play this piece. And he said, oh, yeah, that's it right there. And I pulled it out. He said, go ahead, play it. And I started playing. He said, why'd you start at the beginning? I was like, hmm. <laughs> you know, so he said, why did you start at the beginning? And he says, you know, and why did you choose that tempo? And then he said, I, when we played this piece, I don't tell anybody what tempo or where to start in this piece. And the wonderful thing about Bach, you know, as a composer, is it still works for him, you know? It still makes sense. And, and I think, you know, Rassan, like, looks at, and you look at kind of where these, these lines are and, and what the canon is, and how to be able to, to, to examine it in a way that, and output something, to, something totally different that is totally within the, the framework, you know, within the periphery and within the frame of how to kind of disseminate the information again, you mm -hmm. know? So I think you're gonna play us kind of your your new version. Oh, so I'll play. Uh, there's two sound pieces upstairs. One is on the on the outside uh, of the boundary, and one is on the inside. So I'll I'll play the piece that's on the outside, and then you can sort of start to you'll hear where Kirk rolls in. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so I mean like I'm reeling. I'm reeling because as I mean, as I approach the gallery today, and this is this is the so that's the call I got, like the call that says, 
have something for you, um, which is, <laughs> and you enter that space. Um, can you talk about the, the different components of that, that sound work? Yeah. The, the real um, bones of that um, come from the Art Ensemble of, of Chicago and, and using, starting to really come into uh, uh, sort of systems for how I approach editing sound and, and it heavily relates to a lot of the way minimalism works visually. Um, so I'm removing, removing the big parts and then you end up strung together um, all these sort of little moments and then start, uh, so that's the structure is the Art Ensemble of Chicago and then the little the chimes and the little whistles, that's Roland at the beginning of songs, at the end of songs, partially from the inflated tear and elsewhere on that same album. Um, then the strings are coming from Ollie Wilson right. and very, he's, um, he was the chair of music uh, at, at Berkeley um, for about 30 years, I think. He was there for a long time and he's now um, retired Professor Emeris. I had the honor of meeting him at the American Academy in Rome. Um, and even though we were sitting at a grand piano, he didn't play anything, and I was just like waiting to see him. <laughs> I was like, oh. Um, and, and so he also was meeting him in person, introduced me to, to that world mm -hmm. um, of, of composers that operate in the cr not only creative music, as, as George reframed it, which is a term that I wasn't that aware of, um, but the, the classical world, um, so that I could pull those people in, composing at the same moment, so another kind of situation where I'm looking at the historic breadth of something. So right. Ollie's over here doing this, and Rashawn's over here doing this, and, and, and how they're talking about the same things in a lot of ways. Right, and those um, sounds, you know, the, those sounds like these short bursts or these sustained notes and, and now like looking at some of your uh, well, your pieces now which are what are their common absorbers well acoustic <laughs> I, I kind of bantered around the word acoustic paintings which sounds a little I don't know it's kind of a description of what they are but they're acoustic absorbers um, that are used in sound and recording studios to buffer and absorb right. uh, frequency so to take that as a concept um, and, and put it into the gallery space when I was already working with sound only made sense because I was constantly um, approaching these these spaces that were just absolutely horrible for sound and I would right. lean into it and I would edit sound pieces that I, okay, if it's going to be an echo, then let's just make a piece that's going to sound better with an echo right. and to edit towards that instead of shaping the space. Right. So I'm just at the beginning of thinking about how to shape the space to fit the sound instead of editing the sound to fit into the space that's not made for acoustics. Right. Um, so that, this, these are images from the, the first the show at the kitchen that we referenced before. And those pieces um, ended up at the Manil and um, in the case is John Cage's uh, original 433 score and then uh, Rauschenberg's uh, Rauschenberg white painting and you know of course I was walking into that room after the show was up was, was uh, emotional and bizarre and my work is hanging next to Rauschenberg mm -hmm. <laughs> rubbing my eyes like this is, this is some weird art dream <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it is. You're still alive. It's, uh, right, yeah, it's <laughs> happening right now, too. <laughs> but there's that moment, you know, the, the reason I wanted to start to talk about these is because it's the way your sound pieces also function with, I mean, these pieces are also active, you yeah. know, like they're not passive anymore. Uh, they're, they're working in a way in the space that, that kind of enables your, what Jenny likes to term is crumbs, <laughs> your crumbs to make sense, you know. And what the really, what it, what some of the things that you focus on in some of these performances or that you extract from them is this, the means of articulation that, that a musician has or that a composer has. A composer can decide to have you play legato long notes or very short staccato notes and then there's a myriad of possibilities in between all of that, right? And in that, you've decided to gather these kind of moments, these beginnings and endings, which I think are always the, the most vulnerable moments is when you start or how you finish, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like all life is like that, you know? Um, and you put pull those things together that then make the pieces that are upstairs that make them also work. Because as you said, entering gallery spaces to then make sound, or museum spaces to make sound, can be a disaster. Um, because they are not built, they're built to, to hold generally paintings or sculptures, not necessarily loud snaps, you know, or yelling, you know, or anything, mm -hmm. any sound related pieces. So I was kind of overjoyed at coming into a space that also kind of took care of the sound in a way. Mm. You know, the art take, takes care of where the sound reflects. You know, the absorbers kind of like, like shield us and you can have a different experience, you know, like standing a foot away from the piece, you know, than you would if you sat on the bench, you know, and how the sound is, is absorbed in those moments. Uh, like how do you, like I remember you talk about like once the pieces leave your space, like how your space becomes active again because yeah. Now, after all the work was picked up from my studio to come here, I was just like, it was shockingly loud. <laughs> I just remember like, right. like moving my chair back from the desk, and it was like, whoa, right. well, what's what's going on? Right. But um, yeah, it's, it's you know, it took a decade to build the bridge between the sound and the visual, and. Um, you know, there's def there's a part of me that feels like, oh God, now I have to go learn about physics. <laughs> like you can't talk about acoustics and sound waves without starting to open up this whole other. Is it? That's true. You know, there we were talking about also is there's a, there's a there's a research facility outside of Minnesota or in Minnesota that is the quietest place on earth that the person who spent the longest time in there is 45 minutes long. It's how long somebody could spend in there before kind of losing their mind. Because at that moment you can hear all of your inner body working, you know, at a at a moment, uh, and that causes the brain to kind of function in a way that generally is is alarming. And what, I mean, maybe if we'll the last thing we should show before we open up for questions is a great kind of documentary about Rasan Roland Kirk and John Cage. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Maybe at this moment, <laughs> I don't know how to. Like, I'm rarely asked to like, okay, like steer at a moment when you just experience something that kind of. I mean, the point is like waking up the senses again, yeah. waking up the ear again about like, like so after that performance and then hear the pigeons fly down is like, oh, it's part of the symphony. Anyway, um, we're gonna open it up for questions at this time. Yes. Did you prepare for a show like this? So did you build? Did you build a curve? Cur oh, sorry. 
did you change your studio to work? I had to get a studio. You did? Okay. <laughs> and did, 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 then did you have to adjust the work when you got here because the walls were curved? I just, I just held my breath about um, the wall and uh, scale. Um, it worked. I mean, we, we did some things in the space. Um, there's a brilliant crew here, so we, we laid a rope down where the wall was going to be. Then we put some movable panels, and and you know I didn't work with a blueprint. We sort of felt like where where's this boundary going to going to be, um, and you know it was a long process. Gallery shows are very very short. You have like a couple of months, but this was was able to to ruminate, and I was able to digest it and look at floor plans and have support in ways that I usually don't have that institutions provide that galleries don't. Um, so they could come back with here's a drawing of the of the floor, and you know here's it here's the wall perfect, but here's how you had it just a little bit of skew, and of course we had to go with a little bit of skew. But it takes. Um, it was a new process. I said this was a really amazing institution to work with for a first-time solo show because I had a lot of guidance um, and a lot of transparency and openness, and, and I felt very comfortable asking questions. And um, it was a, a two-way conversation. Sure. Um, upstairs, on the inside of the curve. There's a, this kind of low hung pieces that have the yellow that reflects off of the back onto the wall. Um, and I was wondering how that reflection off of the panel relates to the idea of periphery um, and kind of the, I took it as like a visual manifestation of sound. Yeah, um, um, that, that piece is called a score for six measures. Um, it's a six separate um, canvas pieces. And um, for me, working with that, the optics of the light bounce was the first time, again, that I started owning, like thinking about how sound, sonic uh, experiences in a space paralleled with the visual optics of, of vibration from, from color bounce. I mean, it's like Judd to the extreme in terms of getting that, that energy from it. You, the people looking behind it to see if it's plugged in or not. Um, I had a work on paper called Long Low Rest that was a, a drawing of a symbol, music notation symbol for a rest. And, um, like everything in a crowded wall, I hung it low and it made sense low and then I took everything else away and it was like, okay, it needs to not be at eye height because it, 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 it has a different feeling. So kind of that's how that happened. It's very organically and now I have to, you know, think about where that's going to go. <laughs> Anyone else? For Jason. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, because you know what I didn't get to ask you. What I want to ask now is in relationship to those like you as a composer. I mean, your love of composition and sonic composers, but now then to create a sound work that you did for the upstairs. Like, do, I mean, how do you kind of wrestle with that? You know that you are now a part of the composer uh, canon as well. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I am. <laughs> I guess when I talk, when I have my lunch with George Lewis, I'll find out what the real deal is. He's a professor. 
No, because you know, like there's certain sensibilities um, that could go totally awry. Uh, that seems so beautifully well balanced in this in the, in, in those pieces upstairs, that are not you know that are not built on you know like so much of a system as it is a, as it is right. a feeling. Right. It's about it's about having a great ear, but never learning how to do the work, the right. hard work that you did for many years in reading music and looking at scores. Um, I tried to take, I tell this story before, but I tried to take a music uh, theory class at the new school, like night school. I was like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to learn how to read and write music. And it just was, it was amazing and fun and interesting, but I was just looking at mark making and thinking about drawing and thinking about mm -hmm. Cy Twombly and thinking about, oh, that note, that means that when you play it and very basic relationship that, right. because I was already, I already had the ears um, and I felt bad for, for, for the musicians that were the readers, but they were struggling to, call, to figure out the intervals, to call out the intervals and, right. and um, it's like you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, but um, Schieffer on NPR asked about um, if I considered myself a producer versus a hmm. composer. And I don't really know. I think I, I like to just stay in this weird, undefined right. zone. Because I, because I know that Blue Note thought that they would sign you to a, a record deal. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a singer. A black lady can't get a record deal if you can't sing. <laughs> Terrible. Yes, I said that. <laughs> Uh, any other, and any and other it's question? all falling apart. It was going so well. Yes. Hi, hi. I'm Brigitte Bicoya, and it's such a pleasure to be here to see you tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love you very much. I um, I'm, I wanted to ask this question because I guess about 20 plus years ago, I'd started studying contemporary art with Donald Judd and. Um, Ellsworth Kelly, and I, I really that was really the focus for me, just the blank canvases. And re recently, well, I have a seven-year-old son, and we've started birding. Mm. And having that connection, they were all just separate pieces. They didn't really come together, how art and nature and birds and all of the sounds came together. And I was brought up on classical jazz, so I never put those together. But when I was introduced to your work, it all just resonated with me on such a spiritual level that I just couldn't contain it. Oh I, it made me cry when I started to look at your work. And I wanted to ask you, was it accidental for you? I mean, was it something that you really thought about or did it just come from somewhere that, that, wasn't with, that you didn't know it was within you? I'm curious because yeah, it just came out know, of me. I didn't nowhere. know it was in me. <laughs> I, didn't, I really didn't think. Uh, I tried all kinds of painting and photo collage and all kinds of things. Um, and I think for me, when when um, you do turn your back and you start to sit to let go of people's expectations of what kind of work is expected of you or what people think you should be making as a child uh, of art school years, the multicultural discourse, you know could be liberating but also just put boundaries up around uh, your ideas in terms of thinking about abstraction or even you know being a naturalist you, you can't you can't be a black woman and go make drawings of trees yeah. <laughs> how, how are you going to justify that when a gallery says so what's this all about yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know 
so it just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm choked up because you're so moved by the work. It's, it's hard. It's you feel. It's very isolating. It's very. It's different from from gigging and having response and that conversation with a, with an audience that shapes how your tune, how your song is is developing. I mean, artists are in these little weird bubbles, and then we we come out and. Um, and have to talk about all of these very private, strange um, thought processes in, in the studio space. Yeah, but, that, but, but I think what you pick up on, uh, it is moving work, um, is this sense of, um, you know, I think sometimes like people consider minimalism like without soul, you know? Um, and there's this attraction that I also had to Donald Judd and Smithson and whoever, Robert Mangold, anybody, and like what they kind of offered, you know? Uh, and then you saw imitators and that feeling was not the same, sure. you know? Just as in music, there are imitators of certain styles that it just doesn't feel as real as the real thing, you know? And what is it about, you know, like, so, like for me, Saul Wood also offered this kind of the most soulful opening of a human being to, to, to me as a viewer. And I didn't understand why I felt this way about his work, which was, you know, his beautiful squares. <laughs> and, um, and then once I started to meet people who knew him, that then gave me confidence that this was a person of utmost kind of openness, that yeah. what you feel is her <clears throat> in that work. What you feel is her. Um, and what people feel when they go see work is that person. I mean, of course, it's the process that makes it, but it's, it's that, and it's how it resonates with the person. And what I talk about is, is in sound, it's how it resonates with the backbone. It, hits a cert, it can hit a certain tone mm -hmm. that then resonates. It doesn't make you shake or anything, but it could make you shake, and it does make people shake. And sometimes when I walk into a room, I walk into, uh, walk into space and my mouth drops. So like I walk into the space upstairs as this sound is saying, come, come check this out. And I walk in and see these pieces on the floor and walk around the corner and see now this new, this new, this second movement, you know? And then it becomes very soulful for me. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what you feel. And hopefully I think people will decide that they can feel that way about this work. Because I think in a to a degree, they think that maybe George Lewis isn't soulful, or they think, you know, that, that you know, going to Spiral Jetty is not like the kind of thing that person should do. You won't have a, like a, an experience that will change your life. But yes, you can, you know, uh, that you can have it with all kinds of work. Um, and in jazz, I mean, we get lumped into this, it should always be soulful thing. Mm. And, but it could also be other things, mm -hmm. too. Um, if there's not any more questions, I feel like this is a great oh, We have to, to end it. We have oh, I'm to. sorry. Too. Oh, I was like, oh. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, um, <laughs> Before I cry, I'm about to cry. As an um, artist and musician, I've, um, I graduated from Duke Ellington and you? here, and I'm a student at Berklee College of Music now. Great. And I'm just trying to figure out, when you're creating, Music, like, what is the first thing you guys do individually? Like, what's the first thing do you do, like, when you're when, when you're just trying to figure out how you're going to approach your audience right. and trying to, you know, reach different areas and like, even with art, like, how do you, you know, find a common, you know, how you reach it? I, you, so have individually. To, you have to daydream. I can't. <laughs> yeah. I cannot put a, a system to it. It's it's daydreaming and then some little like hook and then you follow that trail, and I, I mean I I'm a big fan of 
kind of uh, research. Um, thank God you took my notes away, because <laughs> otherwise I would have been like reading a dissertation. But um, yeah, like that little spark that happens. Or um, when I was in in college, I used to keep a journal next to my bed. It sound, all sounds so cheesy, right. but like you you know you wake, you have this strange idea, and you think, oh, I'll remember that tomorrow, and then you were like. What was I thinking right. last night? You, know, you get up in the middle of the night and you write down right. some little piece of a score and it might yeah. turn into your next album. Yeah, I wish, I, was, I wish it was that romantic for me that I got <laughs> wake up and go, oh my God, what is, oh, I have to write it down. That never happened, never, ever, ever in my life. But, you know, I love that it could happen. Um, <laughs> but I also think, you know, the biggest thing to do, I mean, for me, has been recently is to talk to somebody else. To take your worst idea and say, you know, <laughs> Jenny, uh, I was thinking about opening in a shop. You know, what? Yeah, like a jazz shop. I With really am thinking things. about it, right? I really am thinking about it right now. And, I'm, you know, and so I started just kind of, the way I've been working over the past years is as like little, little small idea happens, is sometimes it's to not another per ask another person in, my, in the field. It's to ask someone else outside, you know, so to talk to my brother you know, who likes to write, you know, about what I'm thinking about, you know, uh, so that you don't have like this kind of insider knowledge that's trading back and forth, mm -hmm. but it's like some other kind of perspective. For me, that's been totally so helpful into kind of how I've been addressing my recent work that I think is, is important while you're at Berkeley College of Music to really think about like, you know, of course you're in a conservatory atmosphere, but to really make sure that you ask other people kind of outside of that, that well, it's not a white box, but that box, you know. And congratulations for Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm uh, Rusty Hassan, jazz program with WPFW and yes. a jazz historian. And Jenny, I was really intrigued by that snippet that you did, the oral piece that you have uh, as part of your exhibit with, with the art ensemble and, uh, and, and Rasan Roland Kirk. With, with all that, that's out there, how, how, do you, how do you edit? How do you leave stuff out? What's your process in selecting the, uh, the, the, the musical? parts of your uh, art? Um, I have this like catchphrase, listening as a conceptual practice, and it came up, and it, a lot of it is just, um, I mean, I feel like I'm describing some dreamy life that I don't really have, but um, <laughs> um, finding an album, and then from that album, finding the song, and usually it is that like, <gasps> You know, and for me, that the inflated tear, that song that is the title of the album, encompassed all of that that conversation that I was hoping to to put into the work. That there's there can be melody, and there can be uh, counter melody. There can be uh, all that peripheral, wild experimental energy. But then you can get swept into an emotional um, frame of mind. Also. Um, I find these people through the, 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 the almighty jazz train, which is like you, you have one album and you think, who's playing the drums on that? And then you, you look up the drummer and then you find his album right. and they say, who's playing the horn on that? And then you look up that and it just, you know, it, 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 the self-knowledge wheel of, of how those, those bands work. So I'm, I'm a newbie to uh, Kirk about just like a year and a half ago, getting into, into him. And someone, uh, I saw a Kickstarter page on the internet. There's a kid making a documentary about him um, somewhere in Brooklyn. So I'm, I'm hoping to, that will happen because it's fascinating. He died very young. It's fascinating. He's like 42 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. Well, thank you.